If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 107. The text is printed on the next couple pages of the bulletin also. Psalm 107. um, I sent out uh, the email newsletter this week and uh, said that we'd be talking about excommunication and exile from Psalm 107. I think that got a lot of people worried. Uh, A few folks uh, started to worry whether somebody in particular was in trouble. Please don't panic. Uh, We have no excommunications planned for today. Um, But if you're interested, you can talk to the elders. So... (laughs) Uh, the reason that we're talking about those things, excommunication and exile, I mean, pretty, pretty scary uh, words for us, but we're talking about it because Psalm 107 is a song about God delivering his people from those things. It's a so- song about God delivering his people from exile in particular. He has, it says in verse 3, uh, he has gathered them in from the lands, east, west, north, and south. Well, what's he talking about there? Why... Have they been scattered to the four winds in the first place? It's because God scattered them there in exile. Uh, it was, this psalm was probably written after the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, when the people of Judah, people of Jerusalem, were, uh, it was a hostile takeover, and they were forced out of their land and forced to live uh, in all different sorts of places. Um, and it was probably written after that, after they came back from the Babylonian captivity as a psalm of thanksgiving and celebration for their deliverance. It's a long psalm, uh, so we won't be able to touch uh, on every verse or spend a lot of time in depth on every verse, so let me just give kind of a brief overview of what the whole psalm is about uh, first before we read it and suggest a few things for your attention as we read it. So the first three verses are sort of an introduction to the themes of the psalm. And then in uh, verses 4 through 32, there's a, a, it's a big section, um, there, there's a series of four short stories about what exile and deliverance have looked like for God's people. And so um, this week, Diane told me that she thinks this is her favorite psalm, and I think it's because of this section, verses 4 through 32, those four short stories, she said it's like a bunch of episodes of a TV show that all end the same. It's like a good, happy ending. It's almost like a comedy, really. Uh, the way that they all have a, this happy ending. So there's this pattern that you can look for as we read through that section. It says, some did this, some did that. The circumstances of their lives were such and such. They suffered. It was bad. They cried to the Lord from their distress. He delivered them from their distress. So let them thank him for his steadfast love. That's the pattern that you see uh, verbatim in these four stories. And then in uh, the last main section of the psalm, in verses 33 to 42, there's this long consideration of how the Lord works through surprising reversals. Things, uh, not, not what you'd expect to see, but that's how he works. And, um, and then the final verse, verse 43, I think is, is very important for us to figure out what this whole thing's about. <clears throat> it's a call for us to consider carefully how the Lord works. A call to, to consider carefully how the Lord works the wise will be able to see in all of these things the steadfast love of God. And that means uh, it won't necessarily be obvious on the face of it how the steadfast love of God is at work. Uh, it's surprising, it's counterintuitive, but those with spiritual wisdom can see the steadfast love of the Lord in the whole pattern of exile and deliverance. In the whole pattern. Not just in the deliverance part, which is sort of the happy ending part, 
Um, but in the whole thing, you can see the steadfast love of the Lord, Lord at work in it. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. <clears throat> Let me pray, then we'll read Psalm 107. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us give attention to your word. Help us really to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Not just to hear and not just to understand, but to have your word incorporated into our lives. Have it make changes in us, in the way that we perceive you, the way that we perceive your work in our lives and in the world and in the church. We pray that you'd help us to have new eyes and new ears, to be able to to see and hear what you're really like and how you work, so that we may give you thanks and celebrate and rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us, especially in the gospel of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord 
for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever's wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, um, let me just give brief definitions of excommunication and exile. These are the, the big scary words that I've thrown out there already, and uh, maybe, maybe some of you don't even know what these words mean. Maybe the children among us don't know what these mean. Excommunication, uh, sort of technically, is when we put a sinner out of communion. Excommunication, right? We put them out of communion. We put them out of the fellowship of the church for persisting in their sin, persisting in their rebellion against God. People who claim to be Christians, yet who continue on in their sin, they go through a process of church discipline, which is intended to bring them back uh, to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And if they resist that, if they persist in that, then they are excommunicated, they're put out of the fellowship of the church. Exile is sort of like the geographical expression of that has been historically, it is through the scriptures. Exile is when you are stuck outside of your homeland, the homeland where you're safe, where things are right, where you have peace with God especially, and peace with your neighbor. <clears throat> but, um, but because of your sin, you don't belong there, and so you're, it's like you're locked out of the house. Right? So you're stuck out. So we might use these words interchangeably, excommunication and exile, <clears throat> as we talk about this uh, scripture. But the surprising wisdom of the Bible, the, the counterintuitive wisdom of the Bible, this is not stuff that you just pick up on the streets. This is not stuff that makes sense to unspiritual people who don't know Jesus, who don't know the gospel. The spiritual wisdom of the scriptures, which is surprising and counterintuitive, is that God intends excommunication, God intends exile for the good of his people. It's something that, these are the workings of his steadfast love. His love doesn't shut off while people are excommunicated or in exile. It's not the end of his love. It's not the hitting pause on his love. These are the workings of his steadfast love. Let the wise consider what this means. The whole story of the Bible is about the deliverance of God's people from exile. The whole story, from cover to cover. You can look at the Bible from a lot of different perspectives and see in it a lot of different themes and strands that trace through, uh, that you can trace through the whole scripture. One of those those big themes, those big strands you can trace through. The whole story of the Bible is about the deliverance of God's people from exile, from being excommunicated from the presence of God. 
It's how do we bring God's people back? How does God bring his people back? It's about their return home into God's presence, where they can belong there. It's about their being restored to real communion, true communion with him and with each other. So upon the first sin at the beginning of Scripture, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, God excommunicated humanity. Upon the first sin of humanity, God excommunicated them, just as he'd warned that they would suffer the consequences for their rebellion, their disobedience. He put humanity out of the garden sanctuary, right? He put us out of fellowship with himself. He locked us out of the house. He removed us from the sanctuary of his presence, which really was our true home. It's where we need to be. It's where we're made to be in fellowship with him and with one another. <clears throat> so you, you start to get the picture right there in Genesis 3, but you really get the picture throughout all the scriptures that, that God put us out God excommunicated and exiled humanity from his presence for our good. He did it for our good. He did it because he loves us. He did it because he wants what's best for us. And that means that we need to be redeemed, we need to be renewed and delivered from ourselves, from our sin, from living in a broken relationship with God before we could once again be at home in his presence. So he wouldn't leave us unchanged as sinners. That was the, the point of Genesis 3 where he says, uh, we, we can't let them eat of the tree of eternal life because they'll be stuck the way they are in this relationship, this broken relationship as, as sinners, twisted human beings. They'll be stuck that way forever if they are welcome in my presence and eat the tree of life and live forever here. And that can't happen, God says. So he wouldn't leave us unchanged. He would bring us to the place where we called on him for deliverance. He would make that change in us. He would make us to know our need for him. He'd make us to know our need for his mercy. And he would cause us, through exile, he would cause us to call upon his name for salvation, and then he would save us from our sins and restore us to true communion with him. Our exile was for our good. Believe it or not. I hope you would believe it. It was for our good. And the way that God would make it good, the way he would make exile good for us, was by coming out himself, coming out of the garden sanctuary into the wilderness of the world where we had been cast out, coming out himself to meet us in our exile, to work his salvation there, and to carry us back into the promised land, to bring us home in his presence again. So there is a sense in which excommunication, exile, this is self-inflicted. That's clear. Maybe that's obvious. There's a sense in which it's self-inflicted. We, we bring it upon ourselves through our sin, especially our lack of repentance, our lack of turning away from our sin and turning to God. We bring excommunication upon ourselves. But there's another more important sense in which excommunication and exile are God's tools to redeem us and to restore us, to fix what we've broken, to save us. It's the working of his steadfast love to us. And the, the classic passage on this is in the New Testament. The classic passage on excommunication in the whole Bible, it makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 5, when someone in the church has been continuing in grievous sin and needed to be disciplined and renewed in repentance and faith, Paul instructed the church to excommunicate him, to put him outside, 
the fellowship of the church. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 5. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Put him out. The sinner has brought his excommunication upon himself, but the purpose, the purpose of excommunication is ultimately his salvation. Clear as day. It's not just to shun him. It's not just to punish him. It's to save him. Deliver the sinner into distress so that he'd call upon the Lord and God would deliver him out of his distress. It's meant to be a a world-shattering wake-up call, finding yourself out of communion with God and with his people out in the wilderness of the world. It's meant to renew the sinner in repentance. Turn away from that sin. It's, It's meant to renew the sinner in faith in Jesus Christ so that he'll He'll humble himself, call upon the name of the Lord, and be saved to be restored into the communion of the church in the love of Christ. So the purpose of excommunication is restoration. It's redemption. It's salvation. The purpose of excommunication, even what appears to be the ending of this relationship, is so that the relationship actually would last forever. It's a prescription of divine love when God tells us to do this. It's an exercise of divine love when we do this. It's an instrument of salvation in the lives of people who are excommunicated. So he says in Hosea 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us so that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So in our passage, he scatters to the four winds so that he may gather us from the east and the west and the north and the south. So that he may deliver us when we call upon him. He excommunicates us. He exiles us. That's that's coming from God. That's the position that God puts us in. He does that so that he may save us because he loves us, because he's good. This is surprising. It's counterintuitive. It's very difficult for sinners to believe and remember and uh, live, live as if this were true. It's very difficult for us. Even Reformed pastors who profess that church discipline is a mark of the true church that's intended for the keeping and reclaiming of the offending sinners. Even a whole bunch of Reformed pastors who ought to know this stuff, when we get together, got an example of it, Several years ago, there was a pastor in our presbytery uh, who was under discipline for several charges that were brought against him by people in his church. And he refused to participate in that process. And when we reached out to him, uh, he drew away. He withdrew from us. He eventually stopped corresponding with any of us. And this was a demonstration of a lack of repentance on his part. He didn't like people poking at his sins. He withdrew from that, and he withdrew from church discipline. So it was a demonstration of his lack of repentance. It was clear that he didn't trust Jesus enough to just go ahead and live in in the light and say, 
I've done this and confess his sins and repent. And so it was recommended to the presbytery that he would be excommunicated for, big word that nobody understands, contumacy, for contumacy, which is stubbornness, hard-headedness, uh, lack of repentance, really. Not for the initial sins that he was charged with, but for a resistance to the discipline of the Lord. That was what he was going to be excommunicated for. That's really the ground for excommunication when somebody refuses to repent and call on the name of the Lord for mercy. Again, that's the whole point of excommunicating someone at all anyway, is that he would wake up and do that, and he would repent and call on the name of the Lord for mercy, put his faith in Jesus Christ, and be saved. But when the presbytery was debating whether to excommunicate this pastor, um, there were arguments made against it saying, we should not do this, at least not right now. Let's put it off. Let's delay. The arguments went something like this. We should delay his excommunication because we love him. We should delay his excommunication because we love him. And the assumption of an argument like that is that it's unloving to excommunicate somebody. That when you excommunicate somebody, you've turned off the spigot of love. No more love. You hit pause on that. This is something else. Right? Excommunication exile is something other than love. It's what you do when all of your attempts at love have failed and you just have given up. When the sinner's lost cause and you just have to bring an end to it all and make a statement about something. But excommunication is a function of God's love. That's what the scriptures say. It may be counterintuitive, but it's God's revealed wisdom. The discipline of the Lord could be called tough love for sure. But it is love. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Over and over again in our passage, we're called to consider the wondrous works, the steadfast love of the Lord, the surprising reversals of the way that God works when he's working out his steadfast love, his steadfast love that never fails, that doesn't turn off, that you don't hit pause on, even with excommunication. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that lasts up to the moment of excommunication and beyond. That's most of the psalm is the beyond part. Because God is the God who scatters in order to gather, who sends his people into exile so that they'll call on him for salvation, so that he would go out to them and deliver them and bring them back home into his presence, so that they would return with repentance and faith and ultimately thanksgiving and celebrate their renewed relationship with the Lord as a gift of his grace, the working of his steadfast love. That's the arc of the whole Bible from beginning to end. That's the storyline that gets repeated over and over again. Like in Psalm 107, the Jews, the people of God, they've been unrepentant in their sin for centuries. And God had warned them in Deuteronomy 30. He had warned them that this would mean their exile, that they're going to be scattered among all the nations, that evil men are going to come and carry them away if they persist in their faithlessness and their sin and their unrepentance. They're going to be scattered into the nations and driven out of their home, kicked out of the house. And finally he brought it about, and their, their exile was self-inflicted, but God was the one who drove them out. As it says in, uh, in verses 11 through 15, For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High, so he 
bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. So let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So the psalmist isn't just saying, thank the Lord. He brought about a a good ending to your terrible story. The psalmist is saying, thank the Lord for his steadfast love to you in your whole story. Your whole story, including the part where he sent you into exile so that you would learn your need of him, as well as the part where he responded to your cry with deliverance and brought about a good ending. Thank the Lord for that whole story. The fact that God, in his steadfast love, was behind the suffering of his people in exile. That fact is impossible to appreciate apart from spiritual wisdom, but is made clear in two of the four episodes in this psalm. It's, uh, it's implicit, really, throughout the whole psalm, but it's, it's explicit in half the little short stories. God made his people like prisoners sitting in darkness before shining his light upon them and bursting their bonds. God commanded the storm at sea to bring the sailors just to the brink before making the storm still and calming the sea and saving them. God drove his people out into places of desperation. He brought them to rock bottom so that they would call upon him so that he would deliver them and lift them up out of their troubles. The experience of exile might look different for different people, just as different people here in this psalm are experiencing different aspects of exile in Babylon, right? Some some were just plain lost, stumbling around, directionless, not knowing how to get to their destination, not knowing how to get to a city where there's safety and security and peace and comfort. They're just plain lost in the desert. They're homeless until God brought them to a city and made life fruitful for them again. Some suffered direct oppression and imprisonment and forced labor, more like slaves. Some felt their slavery, and they knew they needed to be set free from their slavery. Some became self-destructive, and really in that third, third story, I think um, you could use the picture of uh, like a drug addict, a drug addict who's so just out of touch with reality, out of touch with their basic needs for life anymore, they just shrivel up until God restores their sanity by sending forth his word and healing them. Some weren't doing too badly. That last story, I mean, they're, just, they're displaced, right? Israelites, they're not really a seafaring people. For them to be out at sea doing business is a strange thing for Israelites, not normal. Um, but they were doing business, and they're making a go of it, right? They're making a go of it in their exile. And maybe even they're, you know, successful about it. Until God himself put the fear of God into them and then spared their lives and brought them back into his congregation where they belong. But each of them, and all of them, can thank God for their whole story start to finish. In a very real way, we can thank God for letting our lives go to hell. That's what it feels like to be in exile, to be in excommunication. That's what it is. We can thank God for that because that's exactly where he meets us. 
That's where we have no choice but to call upon him for mercy. And we wouldn't do it unless he brought us to that point. But that's where he saves us from ourselves, and that's where he brings us home and he restores us. Our exile sufferings in this world can look like a lot of different things. People wandering in the desert, wandering aimlessly in life, uh, people enslaved to all kinds of things, self-medicating, people rejecting God's reality, people doing all right. Successful business people. Sometimes our exile, our excommunication is acute. It's actually formal. It's been formalized by the church, by the leadership of the church. And someone's been put out of the fellowship of the church. But these are all the places, these places of exile and excommunication, whether formal or informal or whatever you have, these, these are the places God has brought us because he is good, because of his steadfast love, so that we would call upon his name, something we wouldn't do if we weren't in those desperate places, so that he would then deliver us and bring us home. And the proof of this is in Jesus Christ. The proof of it. In Jesus, God has come out to meet his people in the wilderness. He had to go out first before he could bring people back in. And he did it. He was willing to do it. Because that's what this whole plan's been about from the beginning anyway. Is actually saving and being good to his people and loving them. And so, in Jesus, God has gone out to meet his people in the wilderness. He literally did that. Going out into the wilderness, which is a picture of this whole thing. He went out into the wilderness to be baptized by John, which means that he was united to his people in baptism. Baptism is where he picked up his bride, where he picked up his church, picked up all of his people out in the wilderness, out in exile. He went out there, united himself to us, picked us up in order to carry us home to be with him forever. Jesus suffered God's discipline. The writer of Hebrews says he suffered God's discipline. It's what made him the perfect savior for us. At the cross, Jesus was disciplined all the way to the ends of love. He was excommunicated. He was exiled. He was cut off entirely. He was made homeless. He was afflicted in outer darkness so that we would be delivered, so that we would be restored. He went outside the city. He went out into the wilderness. He lost communion with God so that we might be brought back into the true communion of the sanctuary where God's people dwell with him. And the author of Hebrews says, again, when you suffer discipline in this life, when you're suffering aspects of excommunication or aspects of exile or, or the full-on formal thing, when you're suffering discipline <clears throat> in this life, you are being treated as God treated his own beloved son. And we know the story of Jesus. It has the best ending. It's not that God is shutting off his, his love, shutting off the spigot or hitting pause on his love for you when you're being disciplined. You're being treated as he treats his own son, his own beloved son. And the end of that story is joy. His discipline, even the extreme end of it in excommunication, is a tool of his steadfast love. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Can you believe it? It's hard to believe, especially when you find yourself the subject of church discipline. Right? People poking at your sins. Someone's calling you out, calling you to repentance. It feels like an attack every single time. It feels like an attack. Just like the 
when the Jews were attacked by Babylon. It's an attack, and it feels destructive. Just like Jesus was attacked and he was crucified, he was killed. But it's only an, an attack on your sin. It's only an attack on the parts of you that are wrong and out of fellowship with God. It's only an attack on your, your flesh, the scriptures say. The flesh that needs to be offered up to Satan for destruction so that you might be saved. It's only an attack on the part of you that wants autonomy from God, wants to just be left alone to your own devices. And that part of you needs to be attacked. And it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be done away with, sometimes violently. So that you can be saved by God's grace as you turn to him and you repent and you call on him for his mercy. Because God loves you, you've got to hear that. Because God loves you, he will take you through that process as he sees fit. It would be the easiest thing in the world to interpret that whole process as God's hostility, as God's cruelty. But it's not. The scriptures say, however difficult, however eviscerating, however world-shattering the process of discipline might feel to you, God means it for your good. Cry to the Lord in your trouble. He will deliver you from distress. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult word that we read many times in the scriptures. These things that we have not chosen for ourselves, this, uh, this discipline of yours, excommunication, exile, these facets of what it means to be on this end of your, your tough love. Uh, these are frightening times for us, difficult things for us to consider. Uh, everything inside of us rears up in rebellion against that idea and would rather think of you as cruel and hostile for the circumstances you've brought into our lives uh, at moments like that. But we pray that in all things you would convince us and persuade us, especially through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you do love us, that you are good. Your steadfast love is always toward us, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. No matter even if we're faced with excommunication, find ourselves outside the church, we pray that you would use that as a a wake-up call, the wake-up call that it was intended to be, if it ever happens to us or to our friends, our neighbors, our beloved, uh, people in our families, people in this church, if we find ourselves on the outside, we pray that you would make us to know that That's exactly where you want us, and that's exactly where you'll meet us if we would turn to you in repentance, call upon your name. And uh, so we pray that you would deliver us from all of our distresses, that you'd make us the kind of people who are able, uh, through biblical wisdom, to consider these things, to consider what your steadfast love really looks like, these surprising reversals that we would not expect, that we would not choose. Uh, We pray that you would convince us that this really is uh, the act, the working of your great love to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.